The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Title of our sermon, Hold Fast in Faith, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So this evening now, in our consideration of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we come to chapter 2, verse 8, and what is the second of seven letters written to the seven churches. And in our text this evening, the risen and exalted Christ addresses the church at Smyrna. And what the Lord has said to the church at Smyrna is what the Spirit has said to all the churches, right? And that's the, the meaning of that phrase in verse 11, right? What the Lord has said to the church at Smyrna is what the Spirit says to all the churches, and God's, by God's grace, he has much to say to our church through this letter tonight also. So he who has an ear, let him hear. Amen? Uh, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Smyrna was located in Asia Minor along that trade route that we talked about with the letters as they were circulated. Uh, that's in modern-day western Turkey. Uh, and like Smyrna, or like Ephesus, Smyrna was a, a bustling trade port. It was a center of trade, a uh, trade port on the Aegean Sea. And so Smyrna, being a trade port, was a wealthy city, had many travelers in and out of Smyrna. And Smyrna because of that, enjoyed a certain prominence in the Roman Empire. It's a very important city in the Roman Empire. And so the church at Smyrna then, if you can think of the influence of the Roman Empire in the seat, if you will, of the Asian province, uh, also the hostility among uh, Jews in that location, the church at Smyrna could best be described as a small sanctuary of Christians in the midst of a snake pit, <laughs> a small oasis in the midst of a great desert, but not just a desert, a desert filled with wild beasts. Uh, the citizenry of Smyrna was decidedly Roman and devotedly pagan. Emperor worship or the cult of emperor worship became very strictly enforced and any religion that was not supportive of the Roman pantheon of gods uh, was considered religio illicita, an illicit or illegal religion. Certainly, uh, Christianity fell into that category as an illicit or illegal, illegal religion. So in addition then to being considered blasphemous uh, atheists for denying the Roman gods, Christians in Smyrna would have also been exposed to government mandates and not just relating to masks and social distancing, but uh, government mandates requiring all of its citizens to offer incense on an altar to Caesar and to confess Caesar as Lord. So in Smyrna, the Roman cult, the emperor cult was alive and well. But not only was the emperor cult alive and well, it had risen to this level of religious patriotism or religious nationalism. It became a point of national fervor, a point of patriotic fervor to enforce religious, the religious or Roman emperor cult. And to act in defiance of that order for all of its citizens to confess Caesar as Lord, to burn incense to Caesar, uh, to act in defiance of that was treason. Uh, it was a capital crime in Smyrna at this time. And it carried with it a, sen a sentence of Exile, often, often uh, lengthy imprisonment, and capital punishment, which means death. Uh, so refusal, refusal to act in accord with the mandate and offer uh, worship, as it were, to Caesar uh, was often devastating. The refusal was often lethal. And so Christians simply couldn't affirm anyone else as Lord. Uh, Christians could not affirm anyone as Lord but the Lord Jesus Christ and would deny uh, that requirement of the state. Uh, many of you may have heard the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was an early church father, and Polycarp had been a disciple of the apostle John. And Polycarp had become, after his discipleship uh, with John, had become an elder in the church at Smyrna. So Polycarp was at Smyrna. Polycarp would have likely been in his 20s when this very letter was read aloud in the church. Can you imagine? He was 86, 86, when the Roman government burned him at the stake. When the fire failed to finish him, the Romans stabbed him to death. 
And what was the criminal offense for which Polycarp and countless others were killed? What was his offense? He refused to confess Caesar as Lord. He was killed for it. Countless Christians, countless Christians of the Roman Empire killed for refusing to confess Caesar as Lord. Polycarp is recorded as saying on the day of his death, which is often uh, in history celebrated on the 23rd of February, he said, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? Refused to confess Caesar as Lord, and they killed him for it. They killed him for it. That was in Smyrna. Add to that then, add to the difficulty of that persecution, what is the historical record of intense Jewish slander against Christians in Smyrna. It was a practice of Jewish synagogues in that area to pronounce public curses on Christians, uh, to stir up opposition from government officials. They would inform on Christians. Uh, we can see that very thing in the book of Acts. Jewish, Jewish, uh, the Jews... Um, chasing, as it were, Paul around Asia Minor, a Jewish persecution of Christians uh, detailed in the book of Acts. I can imagine, you can think with me, that during the reign of the savage emperor Domitian, 80s to 90s AD, the persecution of Christians in Smyrna may have been very much like the general suspicion and hatred of Jews in Germany in the days preceding the Second World War. It was that kind of a circumstance. They were rounding them up, throwing them into prison, prison, and the, it wasn't simply a prison sentence. Throwing them into prison meant death, right? It meant death. These Christians in Smyrna would have been well described by Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. They endured a great struggle with sufferings. They were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. What did the church then at Smyrna need? The church at Smyrna needed endurance. The church at Smyrna needed encouragement. They needed perseverance. What they needed in their circumstance was to hold fast in faith. And so the Lord addresses this persecuted church and addresses this church in her need on the precipice of what will be an even greater persecution. We'll see that in our text. He addresses them in a brief statement with evaluation, with exhortation, and then with encouragement. Evaluation, exhortation, and encouragement. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. These things, in other words, spoken by the one who is himself eternal, the one who inhabits eternity. He himself is self-existent and self-sufficient. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Do you see? The first and the last. First, it's a statement of his deity. The Lord Jesus Christ is the incarnate God-man. Chapter 1, verse 8, he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Here, he is the first and the last. It's a statement of deity. In chapter 1, verse 17, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. Now that statement, first and last, is an echo, if you will, of Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. And in Isaiah, turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 44, look there with me at verse, 40, uh, at verse 6, Isaiah 44, verse 6. And the Lord's statement here, first and the last, is an echo in this passage, where Yahweh himself says these very things of himself. Isaiah 44, drop down to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, you see that in all caps, that's Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. How many firsts and lasts are there? There's one. One first and last. Besides me, there is no God. 
What does that mean? It means Jesus Christ is God. Do you see? And who can, listen, who can proclaim as I do? Verse seven, then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. That's going to be important. He is the one who appoints by his will and according to his purpose, the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid, verse 8. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? Do not fear, do not be afraid, because I hold history in my hands. Do you see? Do not fear, do not be afraid, because I'm the one who has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass. I have your well-being in my hands. You see, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. A rock for a foundation to build on, right? A rock for a shelter to flee to. He is our rock. Indeed, he says, there is no other rock. I know not one. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Do you see? First, it's a statement of the Lord's deity. Second, back in Revelation chapter 2, the first and the last is also a reminder to us of his authority. Of his authority. That should go without saying. If he speaks as God, uh, he speaks with all authority. Indeed, all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this fact that it is a reminder to us of his authority is evidence to us. It's proven by the fact that he was raised from the dead. His authority proven by the fact he was raised from the dead. Paul said this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Listen, that according to the working of his mighty power, God raised up Christ from the dead seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Above, right? Above all power, all principality, all might, all dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ has all authority. It's a statement of his deity. It's a statement of his authority. It's an affirmation of his deity, an affirmation of his authority. But as one who is the first and last, it's also a reminder to us, to his people, that he is the one who holds history in his hands. We heard these words from Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 44. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it. Let him set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people... And I appointed the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. And what should our response be to that knowledge of God's sovereignty? Now think with me, right? We know because God has revealed himself to us. We know the character of God. He's revealed himself to us as righteous and holy and just and good and compassionate, rich in mercy, abounding in grace, right? Pouring out, pouring, lavishing upon his people, loving kindness, generation after generation after generation, faithful to his word. He will not lie, right? He will not go back on his promises. This is who God reveals himself to us to be. And so when we hear that he holds the very history of the world in his hands, when he holds our lives in his hands, when he fashions for us our days, when as yet there were none of them, we can trust him. Do you see? We can trust him. What should be our response? Verse 8, do not fear. Do not fear. It's a matter of faith, do you see? Faith in the goodness of God. Faith in the provision of God. Faith in the compassion of God. Faith in the mercy of God. Faith in the grace of God, right? Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it? I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen so that when it comes about, you can trust me. You can trust me through it. You can trust me in it. I'll take care of you. God holds eternity in his hands. He cares for us. He sustains us. It's in him that we are to place our trust. It's in him that we are to seek refuge. He is the one who raises the dead, right? He raises the dead. As the one who is sovereign over all their circumstances, the one who has appointed the things which are coming and shall come, he is the one who has gone before them in death. He is the one himself who has gone before them in death. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. He is the one who has gone before us in suffering. He is the one who was dead 
and yet now has been raised to life, he says, right? The first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that though we have the sentence of death in ourselves, And though we may face burdens beyond measure, above strength, such that we despair even of life, we should not trust in ourselves, but in him who raises the dead. That's what the Lord was teaching Paul through that very difficult trial that he faced, that he references there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He teaches us through trials, through difficulty, through adversity, to trust in the one who raises the dead. If he is the one that raises the dead, we can trust him all the way to death. Do you see? all the way to death. He's going to call these believers in Smyrna to do just that. It becomes very important when you face the kind of difficulty, the kind of adversity that this church in Smyrna was facing. Very important that you know that God holds your life in his hands and that he can be trusted all the way to death. So the God-man, the God-man, the captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering, he is the one now, he's the one who addresses the church at Smyrna in her persecution. Do you see the importance of that? He went through it first, and now he addresses the, the church at Smyrna as she follows in his footsteps. Do you see? She is going to follow his example. It has been appointed to them, not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but to suffer for his name. So as they go through their suffering, they know they're following in the footsteps of their Lord who has gone before them, and just as certainly as he was raised from the dead, they will be, right? Just as certainly as the Lord took care of him, they are his, he'll take care of them. Right? And we can have the same confidence in our difficulties, in our trials, great and small, we can have the same confidence. And so he begins then in this address of the church at Smyrna with an evaluation, verse 9. He says to them, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I'm aware of your poverty, but you are rich. <laughs> Excuse me. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Think with me about his words. He opens up with, I know, I know, I know, right? To the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience. To the church at Smyrna, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. To the church at Pergamos, I know your works, where you dwell. In other words, he's the one who knows. He's the omniscient one, omniscience. The one who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands and works among them by his spirit. He knows the state of his church. He knows the state of his people, He knows every detail, he knows every strength, he knows every need. Even over our church, he knows every detail, every strength, every need. Even those things we don't know to ask for, and the Lord takes care of us. How many times, how many times in our past, we don't even know what to ask for. And the Lord is continuously just providing us with what we need, caring for us in our need, right? Growing us, building us, edifying us, maturing us, taking care of us. Continuously, He is the one who walks among the lampstands. He speaks to this church at Smyrna as a congregation, and he says to them, I know your works, your tribulation, and poverty. In other words, I know your conduct, your works. I know your obedience, your labor for my name's sake. And he says, I know your thlipsis, your tribulation. It's that word again. It's a word that we're going to come in contact with multiple times through the book of Revelation. That word meaning weight, pressure, Right? The weight of distress, the weight of difficulty, the weight of adversity. It refers to a, a pressing down, the world closing in on them. Right? I know your tribulation. And the Lord says, I know your poverty. That word for poverty there is an extreme word. It's a word that often is rever- reserved for describing a dire circumstance. Not used of someone who might have difficulty paying the cable bill this morning, this month. Right? Not referring to that one. <laughs> referring rather to someone who has to beg in order to survive. That's who the, who the word is applied to. Right? Someone who has to beg in order to eat. Those who worked and traded in the Roman Empire, and trade was a very important part of the economy in Smyrna, uh, very often those workers were part of trade guilds. Very, very common in the Roman Empire at this time. Uh, Not much unlike modern-day labor unions, but more so, okay? Trade guilds. Only that these guilds, often supported by the government itself, these guilds were loyal to the emperor cult. 
you're going to be in a trade guild, you were going to be a Roman, and you were going to be loyal to the emperor cult. They were involved in cultic worship. You were required to confess Caesar as Lord and burn your little pinch of incense on the altar. And they had a monopoly on the labor market. So if you weren't part of a trade guild, you were out and you were poor. If you weren't in the guild for your particular trade, and Christians in Smyrna would certainly not have been invited or welcomed in those guilds, then you were destitute, you were poor, you were poor. So Christians in Smyrna were outcasts, as Paul describes himself and his fellow workers, made as the filth of the world. The off-scouring of all things, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This, 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 those descriptions fit well, genuine, but everyday Christians in Smyrna. This was their life. This was what church life was like. They were outcasts. They lived as aliens and foreigners. They truly were in exile. Not unlike Daniel and Babylon, right? Living among the enemy, so to speak. They lived as you and I must be increasingly prepared to live in our own generation, right? I really, uh, in, in the way that things are going and the way that we see things happening now, do believe that that's uh, coming, that there's this, uh, uh, this encroaching, growing, even in our country. Uh, we've been blessed to um, avoid much of that in our own history, but that kind of persecution, that kind of difficulty um, is coming, And just as those Christians lived in the church at Smyrna, lived in that area, just like Daniel and his buddies lived in Babylon, uh, we're going to have to be increasingly willing, increasingly prepared, prepared to live ourselves in our own Babylon, uh, in our own generation, refusing, refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, refusing, right, in defiance of that wickedness, refusing to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and resolving to face the consequences of that in faith. When those Christians in Smyrna refused, refused to honor Caesar as Lord, they knew the consequences they were going to face. And they were prepared to face those consequences. They refused. They resolved to face the consequences in faith. Why is that? Why? Why would we suffer Why have Christians throughout history chosen rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin? Right? Why have Christians throughout history esteemed the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than all the treasures in Egypt? Why is that? Because, verse 9, you are rich. (laughs) You are rich. (laughs) Rich. And this is temporary temporary, temporary, this momentary light affliction. They burned him at the stake. This temporary, momentary light affliction producing for us a far greater weight of glory. Verse nine, you are rich. A little parenthetical statement there by the Lord, but man, carries with it a lot of weight, doesn't it? You are rich. Our Temporal circumstances, no matter how bad they get, do not reflect reality. Do not reflect reality. These things are not true of you, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 that we commend ourselves as ministers of God as dying and yet behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful and yet as always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing all things. As a Christian, you are a walking contradiction, right? A walking contradiction. Because what our temporal circumstances say about you and I doesn't express reality. Uh, And if we're going to endure to the end, if we're going to persevere through difficulty, our faith, needs to be centered on and focused on those eternal and unseen things in the heavens. Um, We have to focus our faith, our hope, our joy on what is real and what is true about our circumstances and not on these temporal, momentary, light afflictions. If you take your eyes off Jesus Christ and you drop them into the filth and mud of this existence, 
that's going to bring difficulty for you. It's going to make things hard. Keep your eyes on Christ. If you're living boldly for Jesus Christ in this life, you're going to be a walking contradiction. And this is not your home. This is not our home. You're willing to put aside comfort. You're willing to put aside leisure. Even to put aside safety in this life. Why? Because you seek a better homeland. You seek a better country. And if you seek a better homeland, if you seek a better country, if you're willing to go outside the camp to the Lord Jesus Christ bearing his reproach, then you should be willing, willing to set aside comfort, willing to set aside leisure, willing to set aside even safety in this life. Genuine Christians are invincible. Invincible. Why is that? Because God has appointed our Days fashioned them for us when as yet there were none of them. He holds our lives in his hands and everything will work according to his plan, which he has determined. And he works all things together for our good. He even appointed the day, appoints the day of our death, which is precious in his sight. And what happens on the day of our death? We open our eyes in glory. So <laughs> gotta be willing to put aside the trinkets of Babylon and to face adversity through faith in him. It's for that reason that um, scripture says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. So if you're gonna live for Jesus Christ in Smyrna, this is the kind of living faith that was required. This kind of living faith was necessary. It's the only kind of genuine faith that there is. Genuine faith genuine faith you you may doubt and you may think that your faith is small but genuine faith is this kind of faith and why is it this kind of faith because it's god by his spirit who empowers it you may think i don't i don't think i could do that i don't think i could face that kind of affliction that kind of adversity be strong brother be courageous sister do not fear do not shrink back why? Because your faith overcomes the world, right? Faith, it's our faith that is the victory that overcomes the world. Uh, it's through faith that we conquer, through faith in Jesus Christ, and the Lord will see you through it. It's a faith that prizes Jesus Christ above all. It's a faith that does not fail in the midst of pressure. It's a faith that does not look at the present for a reward, but it's a faith that looks rather to our heavenly reward. So in addition, in addition now to the Roman government and the cult of emperor worship, in addition to the guilds, uh, the system that seemed to be erected against them, in addition to the economic hardship that they faced, their poverty, where else was the suffering coming from? What else defined the pressure that was closing in on them. Listen to verse nine. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. You are rich. And listen, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Where else is this persecution coming from? Coming from the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. This is an interesting choice of description, okay? They're described as those who say they are Jews and are not right? Think with me. These are ethnic Jews. Who he's talking about are ethnic Jews, and ethnic Jews uh, entrenched in Judaism are stirring up tremendous hostility, tremendous persecution. They say they are Jews, and Jesus Christ says they are not, right? That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we're talking about ethnic Jews, Jesus Christ says they are not. The text isn't referring to ethnicity, right? The text isn't referring to ethnicity. Their distinguishing characteristic is not their ethnicity. Their distinguishing characteristic is their blasphemy. Their blasphemy. If ethnicity isn't being referred to here, then what is being referred to here? What does Jesus Christ in his letter to the church at Ephesus have in mind? Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 28. We've been through this text together. He is not a Jew. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, 
whose praise is not from men, but from God. So a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. A true Jew is one who is circumcised of heart. Do you see? Romans chapter 2. Listen to Romans chapter 9. Listen, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, (laughs) nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but rather in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. They're not true Israel. Right? They're not true Israel, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The children of the promise are true Israel. Right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore know, Paul says, that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So think with me and make the connection. Okay, The Lord is referring to these ethnic Jews. These ethnic Jews are saying They are Jews do their descendants from Abraham. In other words, they make their boast that they are the covenant people of God because they are descendant from Abraham, right? They make their boast, and yet they are merely Jews outwardly. They're merely Jews outwardly. They are not marked by a new covenant circumcision of heart. They do not possess the faith of Abraham. They are not the children of the promise, they say they are Jews and are not. And they say they are not Jew, they, they are Jews and they are not according to God's definition of who a Jew is. Right? According to God's definition. Who is the true Israel of God? Who are the true seed of Abraham? Those who hold the faith of Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Those are, they are the true Israel. While these persecuting Jews reveal themselves to be a synagogue of Satan, those who have rejected the testimony of Jesus Christ, rejected the gospel, these persecuting Jews reveal themselves through their rejection to be a synagogue of Satan. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Let's look at that together. John chapter 8. And this is in a confrontation between the Lord Jesus Christ and these unbelieving Pharisees in John chapter 8. Drop down there to verse 37 and think with me now to unbelieving ethnic Jews. That's who the Lord is talking to. Unbelieving ethnic Jews. To those unbelieving ethnic Jews, Jesus says this. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, (laughs) but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Well, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. (laughs) Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They say they are Jews. Obviously, they are not. That text goes on. I encourage you to take a look at that. (laughs) The Sanhedrin plotted to kill and eventually did kill Jesus Christ. The Jews rushed upon Stephen in the temple and stoned him to death. Saul ravaged the early church, dragging off men and even women to their deaths. Saul, a quintessential example of these who say they are Jews and are not. When Paul was converted, the Jews turned on him in a matter of verses and sought to kill him, right? Acts 13, the Jews persecuted Christians in Antioch. Acts 14, the Jews persecuted Christians in Iconium. Acts 14, the Jews persecuted Christians in Lystra. Acts 16, the Jews persecuted Christians in Philippi. Acts 17, the Jews persecuted Christians in Thessalonica. Acts 17, the Jews persecuted Christians in Berea. Acts 18, the Jews persecuted Christians in Corinth. Acts 19, the Jews persecuted Christians in Ephesus. No different here in Smyrna. No different. They say they are Jews. They say that they are the seed of Abraham, but they are not. They are unbelieving Jews doing the will of their father, the devil. That's who these people are. Their false accusations of God's people are associating them with the false accuser, the one who is the adversary, Satan himself. 
They are not sunago. The word means to gather. They're not gathering or assembling the people of God. They are a sunagoge to Santana. They are a synagogue of Satan, a gathering place for the people of Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan, do you see? Their hostility toward the true people of God, their collusion with the devil against the people of God is characterized here in the text, our text, as blasphemy. The word blasphemy means slander, malicious slander, a malicious act intended to ruin a reputation. Often, slander or blasphemy against God, when someone blasphemes God, they're assaulting God's character or assaulting God's name or assaulting God's reputation. Their attack against the people of God here is characterized as blasphemy. Blasphemy. The obvious implication of the text, by implication, is that the church at Smyrna is a true synagogue. Right? The church at Smyrna is made up of the true Israel of God, a true gathering together of the people of God. Oftentimes, in the Septuagint, synagogue refers to the gathering of the church. Uh, church referred to the gathering of Israel. So what was then, what is the Lord's evaluation? That's what we've been talking about, the Lord's evaluation of their circumstances. The Lord says, I know your works, I know your tribulation. I know the difficulty that you have been facing, are facing. I know the relentless and ruthless evil that you are suffering at the hands of wicked men. I know that everything you have had, had once had, has been taken from you. I know that the world feels as though it's collapsing in on you. I know the pressure. I know the weight that you're facing. But the Lord says, you are mine. You're mine. Sons of the kingdom, partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, you are rich. Rich. Endure. Endure knowing that we have a better country, a better citizenship. Hold fast in faith. With that evaluation of their circumstances, the Lord moves on to exhortation, that in verse 10, exhortation. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, behold is the word. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. For all that Smyrna had already suffered to this point, she stood at the precipice of intense persecution. A great tribulation, as it were. She's not going to be spared that tribulation. Notice, she won't be spared that tribulation. Her faith is to endure through that tribulation. And she knows that the Lord will see her through it, right? But she's to go through this tribulation. Her faith is to endure She'll not be whisked away. She's not going to be raptured before her great tribulation as though it would somehow be unjust for God's people to follow the example of their Lord into or in walking through tribulation just as he did for them. It's not what's going to happen here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you were called. In this case, it was to this persecution that Smyrna had been called, Right? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. I think that uh, example, the historical record of Polycarp is a good testimony of that very frame of mind, right? Uh, Polycarp, the Lord has been faithful to me all these years. I will not blaspheme him. Um, and Polycarp, uh, facing death, um, his faith did not fail. Committed himself to him who raises the dead and died. And Polycarp's um, characterization of his impending death was that God has counted me worthy, right? The Lord has counted me worthy to suffer with the martyrs that I might share the cup of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what these exhortations uh, call us ultimately to if the Lord were to bring that about for us. Everything in between, right, to that extreme and also in, in little and small ways along the way. When Paul went back to strengthen and encourage churches in Acts 14, those churches that he planted, preaching the gospel, how did he encourage them? When he went back through preaching 
to strengthen the converts, how did, he, how did he encourage them? What words did he give them to help them live for Christ in their generation? What did he leave them with? Continue in the faith, he said to them. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. He reminded them of the tribulation they would face. He reminded them of the adversity they were going to face for the kingdom. Hold fast to Christ in faith. Hold fast. The Lord's exhortation in the face of that tribulation, verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. You're about to feel tremendous pressure. One brother referred to this pain, though, as as pain with a purpose. (laughs) Pain with a purpose. It's not a worthless pain or a pointless pain. It's not pain for the sake of pain. It's much like uh, the pain that you might be willing to endure going to the hospital for a surgical procedure, right? Willing to go through it because you know it's going to do you good. It's a necessary pain, a good pain. It's a pain that's going to produce fruit. When the doctor says, don't be startled, this is going to hurt a bit, you're willing to go through that because it's going to make you better, right? It's, I'm convinced it's going to make me better, and so I'll endure that pain for my well-being. The Lord is doing the same thing, right? Don't be startled. This is going to hurt. It's pain with a purpose, pain for a good. We'll even let a stranger open us up and operate on our innards. (laughs) A stranger. As long as we're convinced that he's doing good to us, right? The Lord only does good to us. Only does good to us. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Reminds me of the Lord's parting words to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Meeting with them in the upper room and then he walks to the garden with them. He's about to leave them via the cross and he says in John 14, 1, let not your your heart be troubled. Do not fear. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Verse 29, I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. In other words, your faith may endure so that you may not be made to stumble. What was the the good purpose that the Lord had in telling his disciples he was going to leave them uh, by virtue of his death, leave them via the cross. He was going to leave them as they would have felt alone. I'm not going to leave you orphans, he said. I'm going to send you my spirit. But I'm telling you these things in advance. Why did he tell them these things in advance? John 16, 1. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. You should not be made to stumble. That your faith will be strengthened, right? The Lord is telling us these things in advance, Revelation chapter 2. Do not fear. Persevere. Endure to the end. He said to them, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Why is that important? Because God is sovereign holds history in his hands, holds our circumstances in his hands. Don't fear. Don't be startled. This is going to hurt, right? Don't be startled. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, verse 10, do not fear. Literally, not one thing is what the word means. Not one thing. Don't be afraid of anything that's about to happen to you. Not one thing. Don't fear. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, That means abandon them in prison, essentially. To throw them in prison is a simple, uh, is a a temporary holding spot until the execution of their sentence for most of them. It's uh, referring to part for the whole. What it means is there are going to be many Christians in Smyrna who are going to be martyred for their faith. There are going to be many Christians in Smyrna who are killed. Polycarp is an example of that. Behind the activities of his children is Satan himself. Do you see that? Behind the activities of the Roman government or those who are going to throw them in prison, who ultimately throws them in prison? The devil. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Behind the activities of his minions is Satan himself. This is the seed of the serpent waging war on the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3. 
In Revelation chapter 12, verse 13, the dragon persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, the Messiah. Enraged with the woman, he went and made war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who's that? Those are Christians, right? He went and made war with the rest of her offspring. This is the devil who's going to throw some of them into prison. The devil's purpose for throwing them into prison, he's waging war on them. He's waging war on them. What is God's purpose in employing the devil's efforts? Have you thought about that? Right? The devil, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over even the activities of Satan. What is God's purpose in employing his efforts What is God's purpose in sovereignly employing the workings of Satan here? Verse 10, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. You may be tested. Even the devil's wicked work is only able to fulfill what the Lord has sovereignly ordained for our good. The word test does not mean that God does not know the outcome of your faith. doesn't mean that. The word test is meant to prove those who are genuine from those who are false. And nothing like a trial to do just that. We've experienced that in our own church many times. Who are those who are proven among us? Let a trial sift them, right? Let adversity uh, prove them, test them, and we'll see who's genuine. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved might be recognized among you. The testing of our faith also means the strengthening of our faith, uh, building perseverance and character and hope. James chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, endurance, perseverance, stick-to-itiveness, right? Let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, Patience has a work to do in you. (laughs) And that work in you matures you, completes you, uh, sanctifies you so that you lack nothing. We can't shy away from that sanctifying work of perseverance through trial. Do not fear. Do not fear. Throwing some of them in prison, in this context, stating the part for the whole, simply a trial ensuing, uh, or trial before a sentence, and the, Lord, the Lord's exhortation in verse 10 is an evidence of that. When he tells them to be faithful until death. They're going to have to be faithful until death. Points us to the true end of the tribulation they're about to face. We see that in the example of Polycarp and many others. The Lord is very gracious concerning the severity of this trial in that 10 days is a short period of time. 10 days is a short period of time. It could be that this 10 days is literal. Very possible that there's a literal 10-day period of time that is in uh, decreed here. It's also, it could be that it's a, a short time that will fulfill it, its purpose, right? It's uh, 10 is often, we see in the book of Revelation, referred to a completion. So it's a, it's a short period of time that completes the Lord's purpose. Uh, could be either of those. Uh, this may have been an allusion uh, to the testing of Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Uh, when Daniel showed up in Babylon, they tested Daniel and his buddies for 10 days eating, you know, good food, not from the king's table. To eat from the king's table was a capitulation, you know, maybe a compromise that Daniel and his friends were not willing to make. So it could be a reference to Daniel and Daniel's testing twice, 10 days mentioned there, the same, very same language. So the Lord's exhortation in verse 10 is an exhortation to faith, do not fear. And persevering in faith involves an exhortation to faithfulness. We see that at the end of verse 10. Be faithful until death. So the Lord's exhortation includes an exhortation to faith and to faithfulness. That's what we need. Faith and faithfulness. Be faithful until death. Do not draw back. Hold fast in faith to Jesus Christ. Do not compromise your covenant commitments to him. He who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of him. Do you see? Oftentimes in the Christian life, if you've been a part of a biblical church like this one, time and time and time again, in the history of our church, we've seen it, where a test comes up and you are required by the Lord to persevere not only in faith, but in faithfulness by not 
compromising your covenant commitments to God, your covenant commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him as a part of this church. And what do we see happen in virtually all of those cases is those who will compromise covenant commitments for the sake of a friend or for the sake of, a, of an offense or an emotional outburst, however you want to describe that. They're not keeping covenant commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, we're being called, do not covenant, do not compromise with your covenant commitments to him. We're not of those who draw back to perdition. We are those who believe to the saving of the soul. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How long, O Lord, right? How long, O Lord, until death? Until death, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Where death in Jesus Christ only serves to represent your final triumph. (laughs) The final triumph of your faith, final victory in union with him. So it's that evaluation then, it's that exhortation that is then followed with a great encouragement, great encouragement. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested You will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Great encouragement. A crown is a reward given after the believer's death. Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So what does the crown of life refer to? It refers to eternal life. It refers to eternal life. It's both a present reality. Jesus Christ says we have eternal life but it's also a future reward of perseverance, a future reward of endurance. Um, We are given the crown of life. You could say as a guarantee or as a deposit, if you will, I have presently eternal life that will be enjoyed in all the fullness of what it is in eternity when we are with him. These who overcome, verse 11, these who overcome shall not be hurt by the second death. If these dear believers in Smyrna remain faithful to him, they will certainly receive their reward. If you and I, brother and sister, if we remain faithful to him, if our faith does not fail, if we endure to the end, if we do not compromise our covenant commitments to the Lord who bought us, we will receive our reward. To some, that doesn't sound encouraging, especially in the face of great difficulty or adversity. They are wrecked with fear over persevering through harrowing circumstances. That's why Jesus Christ says, do not fear. (laughs) Do not fear. Trust him. Trust him. Who is it who sustains us? Jesus Christ sustains us by his spirit. Who is the one who preserves us that we might stand before him one day blameless? Who preserved Israel through the plagues in Egypt? Who was it who preserved Daniel in Babylon? His three friends in the fiery furnace. Who was that? Jesus Christ. It's only an enduring faith that fully and finally proves our union with Jesus Christ. He who endures to the end will be saved. Praise God that we're not responsible for preserving ourselves, right? We, we wouldn't, right? In the face of a, a martyrdom like polycarps, we would fold like a house of cards. <laughs> Anyone would, um, unless they are the Lord's. Evaluation, exhortation, encouragement. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Jesus speaks to his church, his people, and he speaks to them in and by his Spirit. Now, how is it that evaluation, exhortation, and communication, how is it that he communicates these things to his church? The Lord Christ writes a letter. (laughs) <laughs> that interesting the lord jesus christ writes them a letter we are to be a people of god's word we're to be a people of the book we're to be a people of his letters to us how does the believer overcome first john chapter 5 verse 4 whoever is born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death how do we overcome our faith do you see he the one who overcomes will live in Christ eternally, which means he'll not be hurt by the second death. Physical death is not the worst thing that men have to fear. Right? 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical death is not the worst thing that men have to fear. Those who overcome through faith will not face the eternal death of hell. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. Listen. John said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. Another book was, was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. How is it that you will die? How is it that you will die? Will you face the second death? Will you be hurt by the second death? We might think to ourselves, we don't face the same persecution that the church at Smyrna faced and so may have difficulty applying a text like this to ourselves. But we need to let the exhortation that the Lord gives here take root in us. Take root in us. We also sense, don't we, that we're on the precipice of persecution. We sense that. So this text has everything to do with us. Has everything to do with us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't fear. Don't shrink back. Don't compromise. Endure to the end. In many ways, though, I'd like to submit to you that our test is, in this age, in this wicked and perverse generation, is in many ways more difficult and more insidious. And the reason for that is that we're not, we're not facing the same kind of overt hostility that Christians in Smyrna faced. But what we do face on a regular day-by-day basis is the seductive embrace of the whore of Babylon. Day in and day out, the seductions of this world, the seductress, the harlot Babylon, seeking to enrapture those who profess the name of Jesus Christ after her own desires, after her own will, it is a pervasive corruption a poison that is seeping and spreading all around uh, Christians. And we have to ask ourselves, as those Christians in Smyrna faced certain death, we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to live without compromise? Am I willing to live an uncompromising covenant commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ who bought me? Am I willing to live for him in this day and age facing those devious temptations? Am I willing to live without compromise? Do not fear, the Lord would say. Do not fear. Trust in him. Cry out in faith. Wage holy warfare. Be faithful until death. How long? How long do we have to suffer this garbage? How long do we have to suffer this nonsense of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? How long, O Lord? Until death. Until death. Be faithful until death. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly do face a destructive and powerful foe. But praise be to you that you have already defeated our enemies, last of which is death itself. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that through faith, you are the one who fights, goes before us. Through faith, you are the one who has the victory. Through faith, you are the one who preserves us. Through faith, you are the one, Lord, who carries us through the battle. Weapons of our warfare are mighty for pulling down strongholds. And we're grateful to you, Lord, that we don't fight in our own feeble weakness, um, but it's through faith that we overcome the world. So, Lord, I pray, strengthen our faith. 
build our faith, bolster our faith, embolden our faith, cause us, Lord, to have a mighty faith, an uncompromising faith, an enduring faith, a warrior faith. Lord, strengthen us uh, for the battle that lies ahead, whether that be the embrace of a seductress, a seductive harlot, or whether that be the, the persecution that we all seem to see is uh, coming. I pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful um, because of your grace to us, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, um, grant us by your grace a living, healthy, abiding faith for your glory to the everlasting praise of your glory. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Amen.